May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Cuke Audio Podcast. I'm DC, Poobah of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives. Doing our bit to help preserve the legacy of Shunryu Suzuki and, and those whose paths cross his. And anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we have a guest, John Nelson, John K. Nelson, not to be confused with our dear, beloved, late Zen Center student, friend, John E. Nelson, John Eric Nelson. John Nelson, I met this John Nelson, John K. Nelson, Professor Nelson, uh, when he invited me to be a guest at his class at um, the University of San Francisco College of Arts and Sciences. They were studying, thank you and okay, and Americans in failure in Japan. And um, I went back a few times. And um, uh, <laughs> I remember once I went back just to meet with his class, and Kudriga went with me. And uh, he, at one point, he was just showing stuff on a slide. You know, he was just showing slides, say, on a projector or something. And uh, we were commenting on him. He had, well, what's your take on this or whatever? And and he brought up one that was a conversation between D.T. Suzuki and uh, Hisamatsu. Hisamatsu was in Boston at the same time as D.T. Suzuki. Um, uh, and I knew about him because uh, they were both on the board of the uh, Cambridge Buddhist Association uh, founded by Elsie Mitchell, and she had talked about them. Uh, and uh, uh, they were both uh, Buddhist scholars, and one of them taught at MIT and one taught at Harvard. Anyway, the quote was, the two of them are talking, one of them says to the other, have you ever met a Westerner who understands this material? You know, they're talking about Zen, Buddhism, and stuff. And the other one says, no, I haven't. And the one who said it asked and said, I haven't either. So John asked me, what's my take on that? And I said, well, yeah, I understand. Either one of them has met a Westerner who's Japanese. <laughs> and I've thought about that some. I mean, in a sense, I guess there's truth to that. Uh, but that's not the way I view existence. I mean, I, I think what we've gotten from Japan is wonderful, and I'm extremely grateful for it. And, um, hmm, yeah, I, I, I think Japan, China, Asian uh, cultures and Asian thought in general is, uh, I, I'd hate to, th I'm sure glad I ran into it. That's what I say. 
And um, uh, there are some terrible flaws uh, with, uh, uh, you know, in the West, but there are in these too. And but basically, I feel that all beings are on a spiritual trip, and um, uh, we can find the, the truth from everybody because everybody is, as uh, Shunyu Suzuki said, uh, wisdom, seeking wisdom. Uh, okay. Uh, now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about John Nelson. Now, this is from his... Um, bio for the University of San Francisco, where he was a professor emeritus. Uh, in, and um, so he left there a while back, and he'll be talking about that. You know, he went to Oregon, and he's up in, God, where are you now? Vancouver or something like that? Anyway, we talk about it. Uh, uh, so it says, uh, John Nelson is a professor, or was, you should update your site, people, of East Asian Religion in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies, University of San Francisco. Oh, that's a Catholic university, I think, right? Yeah. He is the author of Experimental Buddhism, Innovation, and Activism in Contemporary Japan. Uh co-winner of the 2014 Numata Prize for Outstanding Book in Buddhist Studies. Two books on Shinto in Contemporary Japan, A Year in the Life of a Shinto Shrine, and Enduring Identities, The Guise of Shinto in Contemporary Japan. Uh, also, numerous articles and has produced two short documentary videos, Spirits of the State, Japan's Yatsukuni Shrine. God, you know, I've never been there. I'm sorry. Next time. And Japan's Rituals of Remembrance, 50 Years After the Pacific War. He co-edited the reference volume titled Handbook of Contemporary Japanese Religions. Brill 212. So, and he has received extended research fellowships from the Japan Foundation as well as the Social Science Research Council, the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, the Fulbright Foundation, and the Niwano Foundation. During the 2013 sabbatical year, he spent seven months traveling through Japan, Indonesia, India, Nepal, Turkey, Greece, and Germany. Along the way, he gave six public lectures, was visiting faculty in Sanata Dharma University in Yogyakarta, Indonesia, had numerous adventures, and gained a greater understanding of the relationship between religion and globalization. His travel blog and many photos can be found at nelsonjblog.wordpress.com. So uh, that mentions the Jogjakarta thing. That's what I call Jogja when we're talking. Uh, that's like the intellectual capital of uh, Indonesia, and it's in the middle of Java. 
And uh, as I say when we're talking there, that there, there's only two places outside of Bali that Katrinka and I have been. One is to Gili Air for our 11-day honeymoon on this little, little tiny island where there's no dogs, no cars, no, uh, no, you know, there's only a, a, a couple of electric motorbikes. Um, there's donkeys uh, on carts, but that they shouldn't even do that. You can walk everywhere in a few minutes. Uh, anyway, that that's sort of cool. I uh, wouldn't want to be there in, uh, if there was uh, a, a tsunami because there's the highest thing is uh, – the, the Muslim mosque, which is about 30 feet high. Uh, anyway, uh, the other place we've been is Jogjakarta and mainly to Borobudur. Well, there were a number of sites in that area that were good, not just Borobudur. But Borobudur is the largest, what would you say, Buddhist archaeological site in the world. Uh, and and it was great. We really enjoyed that area. Uh, so it says, in February 2016, Nelson was interviewed as an expert on the Shinto religion for a Canadian broadcasting system program, Tapestry. The interview is live on CBC's English Language Online Service. Um, and uh, listen, I'll put a, a link to that on uh, his CUKE uh, page uh, on CUKE.com. In 2015, Nelson appeared on the New Books in Buddhism podcast on the New Books Network to speak about his book, Experimental Buddhism, Innovation and Activism in Contemporary Japan, which is available for free on iTunes. Hmm. Uh, All right. So, uh, and then it says research areas. Cultural Anthropology, Asian Studies, Visual Anthropology, Religious Studies. Uh, anyway, uh, that gives you an idea who he is. Anyway, uh, and he really gets around and, and he gets involved in the practice. Uh, as you will see, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's got a very strong scholarly uh component, and he's got a very strong seeker, you know, uh, practicer component. So, uh, all right, look, uh, let's give John a call. Uh, we, 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 we had a little trouble on this call. It was my USB uh, uh, port, uh, this one and the one before and another one. Finally, I discovered it was the port and I just stopped using that port. I've got three ports. Uh, and I, I do get problems with Skype cutting off and other problems. But um, we just talk mainly about, I don't know, we talk all over the place about religion, about Hinduism, Buddhism, Japan, Indonesia, uh, Islam. Uh, and uh, I want to get him back and have him talk about uh, Zen, uh, especially Soto Zen, but he knows a lot about Zen in Japan. And um, so I'm going to ask him to come back and do that because we really didn't get into that much because, um, well, because my 
my port finally gave out and we gave up. But uh, there's enough here um, for uh, starters. And uh, listen, enjoy it. And uh, after we've had our pause to meditate, we'll give John Nelson a call. So when you hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to come back, hit unpause. And we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever. And we'll give John K. Nelson a call. Hi, John. Hey, David. How you doing? All right. I can hear you fine. Oh, good, yeah. good, 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 good. It's amazing that we're talking to each other. You're in Bali, and I'm in Victoria, British Columbia, mm. and you sound like you're next door. I know. I know. It's true. <laughs> okay. At that point, uh, John and I started talking about this and that, that... Um, I have eliminated. And then I just ask him, hey, tell me what you're doing. The center where I'm affiliated at the moment is called the Center for Studies in Religion and Society. Mm. And it's part of the University of Victoria, which is a satellite university for the British Columbia University system. It's the same system that is in Vancouver and a couple other places. But here it's a very nicely thought out, more modern university. I think it started in 1961, mm -hmm. but the university is, is organized into a circle. And so there's a, a road that goes around the outside of the circle. And then right in the center of the circle, the campus is divided into humanities and sciences. And so all, all the scientists stay on their half of the circle and humanities people stay on the other side, humanity, social science, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. So um, we're at the edge of the social sciences, humanities part, and my office looks into a beautiful grove of trees with nice grass. It's just a gorgeous office, really, really nice. And we've been talking about uh, climate change and spirituality and science because the presenter this week was, he is a, a biologist from Oregon State University in Bend, Oregon. Yeah. And I'm the other Oregon guy uh, from Eugene, and I gave a talk two weeks ago, um, well, I guess one week ago, uh, on my big trip through Asia in 2013, 2014. And at that time, you were not in Bali, right? 2013. We came here in on December 9th, 2013. Oh, December 9th, okay. Yeah. So I was already gone from Bali by that time. I know. Well, sorry okay. to miss you. Yeah, sorry to miss you. <laughs> that would have been fun. But uh, anyway, my my talk title is um, 
adventures with religions in contemporary Asia. And it takes my travel blog from 2013-2014 and then inserts into that some religious studies scholarship about, well, why do the Balinese spend two and a half days on a big cremation ritual in Ubud that, and then they burn everything. I mean, it's just amazing yeah. what I saw but you, for a you, politician's you, wife. You saw quite a, a ceremony. I mean, that's a great um, uh, photo you sent. You saw a really good, yeah. big, important ceremony. That was a big deal. That was a big deal. Yeah. But I saw a lot of other stuff, too. And so the Religious Studies Scholarship is trying to explain some of that to raise the level of literacy that people have about Asia, which is pretty damn low because they're just <laughs> – the, 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 the American – general public, uh, they're concerned about their TV shows and maybe a little bit about climate change. But, uh-huh. you know, there's 30 to 40 million people who are right-wing Republicans, and they just don't give a shit about anything except what they read through their websites and on the, uh, the Trump um, social media site. So they're, I, mean, I kind of consider them to be a lost cause. If I meet them, I, I will argue with them and try to instill some doubt. But you will? Man, they're hardcore. Oh, God. I, yeah. <laughs> well, I have to because otherwise I feel guilty about it. So, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Well, there's uh, only so a couple how, of people I know here who are Trumpers. Uh, oh, uh, really? Uh, yeah, there's two. And one of them is. Uh, a, uh, uh, a monk, uh, he's from New York. No, he's from Ohio, but he's, he, he was with Philip Kaplow's group for nine years. And, uh, oh. he, he was, he was in, uh, Myanmar monastery for seven years in Sri Lanka. He's ordained. And, uh, he just, he just, it was almost seems like organic to me. He just tends to, uh, be uh, fixated on uh, uh, the disinformation and really gets into it. And mm-hmm. uh, so he, he drops by. I might I might have had more visits from him than any foreigner. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? And um, I, we just don't talk about those things. I mean, he knows how I feel. Uh, uh, he's uh-huh. the only person I've really gotten angry with, but it, but it doesn't help. It's it's hopeless. No, uh, no. and no. yeah, and anti-vaxxer. Though both those people are anti-vaxxers and believe all sorts of crap. But mm. uh, anyway, the funny thing is they're both nice people. Uh, this mm. guy mm. has doesn't have a wicked bone in his body. He's very generous, and that woman is uh, really involved with uh, social service program. I mean. I know it's really weird. Uh, it's like mm. it's like a virus, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's a virus that uh, takes over a part of a person's mind, but not all of their mind. Yeah, and it or, or it's a virus that will affect like your your left leg, and you just say, "Well, okay, that's a, that's my left leg. That's, <laughs> that's the way it is. And write it off." Yeah, and you limp around. But I think at the end of their life, they will come to face with the deception 
that they have bought into, and they will have a, a huge humanitarian and spiritual crisis. I just cannot believe that at the end of their life, when they're facing death, that they won't come to terms with how they've lived their life and the the the, um, the falsehoods that they have spread, and the monk especially. It's what happens to people. I mean, I read a book called Something in the Madness of Crowds uh, mm-hmm. uh, when I was in high school about mm-hmm. uh, cults and, uh, you know, mm. th- th- people start believing crazy things. And also, uh, uh, you, you know, it, it's spreading and, and uh, it, it, you know, in, in here in, in, in Indonesia, well, it was sort of a political thing, but anyway, when there was a communist coup attempt in 65, 66, they got into mass murdering right. people, especially Chinese, all right, over the right. island, and, and uh, they were just, uh, it just got totally out of hand, you know. And Bali, well, it was a it was a bloodbath. Yeah, it Bali ki- Bali killed the highest percentage too. Oh, uh, oh man! <laughs> and um, but there's uh, in in um, I remember in uh, in Japan when the earthquake happened. I think Japanese are really subject to this. I don't know why, but mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. when the earthquake and terrible fire happened in 1930, they were massacring Koreans because they said they were responsible. Yep. You, you, yep, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and you can just look almost any society has the ability to go crazy and uh, – mm. The, the the literalists and fanatics in religion are always a danger. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, well, that's very true. Um, we could certainly talk about that uh, when we do an interview, if you'd like to. Um, I'm fairly well versed in that, as well as, I wouldn't say fighting back, but at least taking a stand in a public discussion with a person who is very radically different and would like to probably see me dead, but um, <laughs> oh, not, I, not to shy away from that person, not to shy away and do something to um, kind of at least make them curious about where they're, where they're getting their information from. So I've, I've had those encounters recently in fact, just on the street yesterday, we met this elderly gentleman who was <clears throat> from Ottawa and came out here about 25 years ago. And he, you know, we had a nice chat with him and his little dog, and it was probably 7 o'clock in the morning, and the sun was just coming up. And at the end of the conversation, we probably talked for seven, eight minutes, he just dropped a bomb and said, oh, and by the way, I'm an evangelical, and I love the Lord, and no, oh man, for me that is a, a warning sign. My wife Miko, she just wanted to run away from him at that point. But I said, well, you know, I've taught religious studies for about 25 years, and I'd love to talk with you about your religious beliefs. And he, you know, he kind of reacted in a way that I saw was surprising to him. He, you know, I could see his eyes get big and his head roll back just a little bit, and he probably didn't expect that. He probably expected me to say, well, I think you're full of shit or something else. But, you know, evangelicals, they have to take 
a public stand and profess their faith every chance they get. Otherwise, they're not going to get in the pearly gates. And so I, I you know, I, I could tell him in a future conversation, well, hi, Dave, how are you? How, how's your salvation going? <laughs> and uh, that would probably be a good way to start the conversation. I, I hope that doesn't sound too um, cynical, but I, I do believe that every person has the ability to change their mind. You're the opposite and, of cynical. Huh? You're an optimist. I know you because you were a professor of religious studies, East Asian studies, yep. at right, San right. Francisco University, right? University of San Francisco. Right, University of San Francisco. And you called me in because you, the, I think the first time we met, uh, because you were using thank you and okay, uh, mm-hmm. in, in your class on what? On Zen? On Zen, yeah. Well, that's very kind of you. You've always been very high in my, I've always held you <laughs> very high book. esteem. It's a <laughs> and, and I came back and, uh, other times. And, uh, so, uh, we've been in touch ever since then. And, um, I have followed your, uh, your career somewhat, and your writings. Mm-hmm. So, um, but you know, uh, you know, I usually, when I do a podcast, I start off by asking people what they're doing right now, mm-hmm. uh, rather than, you know, getting uh, in the past. But I do want to know mm-hmm. everything from the past that you'll tell me. Uh, but, uh, but, um, uh, so, Clarify what you are doing right now. That sounded very interesting, the university you were involved with. Mm. Right. So I'm a research fellow at the Center for Studies in Religion and Society at the University of British Columbia in Victoria, British Columbia. And this is a a three-month appointment. It could be longer if I wanted it to, but I am going to return to Eugene, Oregon, where we are living after 21 years in the San Francisco Bay Area, we lived in the North Bay, north of Berkeley, in a little town called Albany. And we pulled out of there in 2021 because um, I was encouraged to retire by the dean. And I was pretty much ready. That was about a year of teaching online because of the COVID case, COVID situation. And I had also given up my administrative role as the academic director for a master's program in Asia Pacific Studies. And so if you go back, if you go back 10 years, 2013, 2014, that was a sabbatical that was my round the world trip from San Francisco to Hawaii, to Japan, to Bali, to uh, Java, and then onward to India, Nepal, Turkey, and Greece, and ended up in Germany. So that trip was was fermented, not fermented, but fermented because my patients were all town, was because it was right after the um, 2008, 2009 to 2012, recession that we had in the U.S. because of subprime mortgage 
rates and banking weird. And all these major funding agencies had their had took a big hit, took like a, a 25 to 30% hit on their investment. So they had money to give out. And plus, I was a senior academic, and they weren't going to give me much anyway. So I just decided, well, all right, I'm just going to take this big trip. My wife said, go ahead, do it. And I was on the road for about eight months. So during that trip, I kept a pretty detailed travel blog, and it's just been sitting there for 10 years because when I came back to the university, they put me in charge of this graduate program that needed to be rescued. So we rescued it. We made a video and so on and so on, and we got probably 30 students um, in two different classes, and I was quite proud of that work. And Plus, it was fun to teach graduate students, too. And I taught one class a year for graduate students and one class for undergraduates. And the rest of it was administrative work, which I did not like and which was hard to do, but um, did it anyway. So that all ended in 2021. The dean encouraged me to retire. Um, We sold our house for an amazing amount of money and we moved to Eugene. And that was a very good timing for this move because I still have friends at the university and they say it's it's changed so much and the student population has changed so much and I I'll find out about that when I teach a class next spring at the University of Oregon so next or in, in January 2024 the winter quarter I'm going to teach a, a class in Japanese religions and then following that is a seminar on Zen and it's interesting this is the last thing I'll say about my about my background for now, but um, it's interesting that in Eugene, they have two different Zen temples. One is a Soto Shu temple, Soto uh, lineage temple, and the other one is a Rinzai temple. And the Rinzai temple is downtown, run out of an old house, and they have one floor in the old house. The Soto Shu temple is in the suburbs, and, you know, pretty expansive um a suburban house that has been transformed into a temple. And so I asked the students when I when I gave a talk in the class in 20, oh, I guess it was the fall of 2021, um, all the students were wearing masks, of course, and I was wearing a mask too, so that was kind of weird. But I asked them, I said, how many of you know that there is a Zen temple in town? And I think out of a group of about 28 students, about three or four raised their hands. And so they knew about it. And so I asked these three or four students, I said, well, have you ever been there? And nobody raised their hand. And so for me, you have to interact with the tradition and however you can. And the instructor has to be clever enough to come up with different ways to do this, whether it's starting your own zazen practice or learning a ritual or doing a, uh, a pilgrimage on campus. I mean, you, there's many different ways you can interact with the tradition but so far they hadn't done any of that and it was all textual learning and i just thought ah they're they're missing what's going on so when i when i teach the class i want to take my students to the zen temple and um, tell them well this is an example of japanese religions in practice and then when i teach the zen seminar we'll go back to the same temple but in a different way and look at more of the tradition of uh, meditation and and teachings too. Um, but yeah, so anyway, I'm looking forward to it. And then maybe next fall, I'll have another appointment someplace else in the world. But I'm, you know, I've, I've just turned 70 and I'm 
semi-retired, but I'm not giving up yet. Oh, good. That's good. Uh, now, which temple did, did you go to? Both temples are. I have been to the temple called Buddha Eye, and that is the Soto Zen temple. The other one downtown, the Rinzai Temple, um, that is a. It's a more modern temple. They have they do meditation at nine o'clock in the morning, <laughs> on Sunday morning. And, you know, that, that's early for them or early for their clientele. <laughs> but I, I haven't been there yet. But I, I'll, I'll be going there very soon once we get back. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested to know what the lineage is. And what's the lineage? Remind me. Actually, I, 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 I have it, and, and you've told me before, but I forget. What, what, who's the teacher? What's the lineage in the Eugene Soto group? In the, in the Soto Zen group, it's a little bit um, – not mainstream lineage. It's a lineage that goes through Sendai, Japan, where the head monk trained and was ordained and had a long relationship with his teacher. And as far as I know, he never went to Eheji or Sojiji and has picked up stuff along the way. I mean, he started the temple 21 years ago and has gradually, gradually built it up into this very active, very inclusive Eugene style Buddhist temple. Mm. It's yeah, so mm. it's it's a training temple. It's a training temple for young priests. Oh, really? I yeah, I think it's it's more focused on their uh, education and well being, and the the sangha kind of tags along for the ride. Uh, there's a lot of ritual involved, which I think is a fine thing, but. Um, Sometimes it's a little bit um, over the top, I guess you could say, uh-huh. uh, for, from my perspective. But my, my perspective is based on San Francisco Zen, uh, Sonoma Mountain Zen Center, north of the city with Kwang Roshi, yeah. and being in Japan, going to temples in Japan. So um, mm. I think, yeah, it's, it's a little complicated, our relationship, but uh, hopefully I'll have more time to work on it. Well, well, you have been involved some with uh, practice there, with with sitting or something, as I recall. Uh, yes. Yeah. Right. My, I, I feel like my whole life I've been sitting. Yes. Right. Right. Uh, and uh, I also recall you saying uh, something I definitely sympathize with. I don't remember how you said it uh, or how you wrote it uh, that you know. Sitting daily is very important to you. And um, um, how, how would you say that now? <laughs> well, I think it's still very important, but I have a different attitude about it. And I think one of the big black boxes of contemporary Zen is the word enlightenment. And oh, many yeah. people get into Zen because, you know, they want to be enlightened, they want to be awake, they want to experience yeah. their life fully. And certainly, sitting Zazen helps with that. Whether or not it's going to deliver you to that destination remains another matter of concern. But I do think that if you have a regular practice and you sit by yourself and you sit with people and you sit in institutions, you develop a flexibility 
and also a real grounding that wherever you sit, I mean, that's your home. That's where you are. That's where your body is. That's where your mind is, your spirit is. And that, that can be anywhere. So I feel like that is a wonderful thing that I have learned throughout my life about Zen in particular and Zen and Buddhisms in, in the plural. And I, I do put an S on the word because I don't think there is anything that you can call in the, in the, in the monolithic sense by itself, Buddhism. That's right. (laughs) I certainly agree with that. (laughs) But that's true for all religions. Yeah, I I agree with that too. Um, All right. Well, good. Yeah. Um, So that's one thing I've been promoting in the last, uh, ever, ever since my, my world trip is that, you know, this is so silly to talk about Buddhism in the singular. And really it's a, it's a kind of Orientalist practice to, to be removed from the, context of the of these various religions and look at it from the outside and say oh well it's all buddhism and it's not i mean there's so much difference between the buddhism of nepal or japan or chinese countryside or downtown los angeles or 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 wherever i mean it's it's just radically different and yet there are elements of continuity between right. all these different places right right, right. And the same thing is true about Christianity. Right. The same thing is true about Islam, Hinduism. Oh my gosh, Hinduism is all over the map right oh. now with yeah. with the right wing um, Hindutva oh. coming out of India and Modi. Oh yeah. And um, so my book that I'm working on about these adventures with religions. I mean, that's a provocative word, but um, I want people to raise their literacy about Asia. And Asian religions. Yeah. And the, for example, I mean, the Islam that you see in Indonesia, to me, there are three types. There, there's a traditional Islam that maybe was practiced uh, 30, 40 years ago. And then there's Saudi money that has flowed into the country and rebuilt some big mosques and um, encouraged people to wear robes and the hijab. And then there's a kind of patriotic Islam that can draw from those first two categories whenever there's a big political contest. And I think that sense of using religion as a political tool is something that uh, Erdogan in Turkey and Modi in India, they both came to power in the same, same year, 2014. They both came to power at the same time that I think politicians just, they can't resist. They have to, mess around in that in that dynamic you know how can we use religion as a tool to keep power yeah and to get the stuff done that we want to have done yeah so i i see that in indonesia i see it in turkey i see it in india and that's not the kind of islam that you see in saudi arabia or dubai or places like that yeah that's a long yeah diatribe there yeah um i i i see another type of islam that's the sort of you know uh, like growing up in America, I I knew uh, I did not grow up in a traditional Christian home at all. More like a New Thought mm-hmm. Christianity, you know, like Ernest Holmes Church of Religious Science sort of thing, Christian Science mm-hmm. and all that. So sort of mind only Christianity, I call it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I knew people who were uh, uh, true believers in 
Catholicism or their Baptist church or whatever, it was never a problem. But most of the people that I knew, it was just something their parents did and they went along with it. It was something was happening. They really didn't think about it much. And I think a lot of the Muslims I know are in that category. Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> um, I deal with Muslims a lot here and I really don't prefer Hindus to Muslims in most ways. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're all good people. Everybody here is, I mean, it's just people here in general, uh, are pretty easygoing. Uh, and are polite with each other. Uh, you know, I've never seen road rage with all the terrible traffic problems we have. Mm-hmm. It's cooperative, and there there aren't any police mm-hmm. to speak of. I mean, you never see mm-hmm. police uh, coordinating it. Mm-hmm. People do a wonderful job. But, but anyway, um, but but the uh, the uh, the fanatics, uh, Muslims in Indonesia are a problem for uh those like uh, the the Muslim president now uh Jokowi uh mm-hmm. uh, uh but, but, you know they're always having to give them throw them bones there give them uh, you know uh legislation they want like that recently making it illegal to have sex outside of marriage Nobody's going to enforce it. And any, even the way the law is written, uh, it, it's only, you can only report a family member and you've got to have proof and stuff. But, um, it's, 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 um, it's interesting watching it. Uh, yeah, the, the, the Hindus though are definitely more, uh, 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 they're not interested in converting other people and, uh, are are right. passing laws to make everybody uh, do what they should do, and most Muslims aren't either, but they'll go along with it, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, I th- I I just think that um, people who might pick up the book and read it because they're interested in Asia, or they traveled there, or they took a class in Asian religions. Or they like my writing style, which is, uh, you know, it's it's personal, but it's also kind of intellectual because I go off on these side tracks, like when I went to Borobudur, and I had I I had uh, taken a hike the day before, about forty kilometers away, and our young guide didn't know the trail. So we went up this we went up this long valley where there was a Hindu temple, an old old Hindu temple at the top of this valley, and he said, "Well, we're going to go up this ridge and then over the ridge to the other side, and then we'll be picked up in the car." But there was no trail. We started off on a trail and it got dimmer and dimmer, and then instead of going back like we should have, and like I recommended, he said, "Well, let's just keep going. We'll, we'll find a trail. We'll find a trail." And the other two people on the trip were. T- two Ukrainian young men, and they were 20, 30 years younger than me. I was 60 at the time. They were probably in their 40s or in their 30s. And they said, no, we can we can do it. We'll tough it out. But it just got wetter 
and muddier and steeper and rockier and more dangerous and more dangerous until finally we were just sliding down the same slope we, we tried to get up. We couldn't do it. And we were grabbing onto bamboo and just sliding from one bamboo to the other. Oh, and that's God. when my knee went out. It hit a rock. And, oh, man, it was so painful. But I put it on ice that evening, and then I put it on ice when I got to Borobudur to a hotel right there by the, by the temple. And mm. for the first two days, I didn't even go to the, to the temple. I just had my knee on ice. But oh. they had a wonderful library. And that whole library used to be the World Heritage Research Center mm. that they created for all these scientists. So they had this wonderful research library. And I could just study and study and study about this amazing temple. So I felt like, okay, this is a wonderful thing here. And don't complain about your knee and it'll be okay eventually. So it took about three days before I finally got to the temple. But by the time I got there, my head was full of the stories about what the temple was trying to do. There are all these relief carvings around the temple on the different terraces that you approach as you get higher and higher. The whole thing is is laid out like it's a mandala with different directions representing different Buddhas and the Buddhas representing uh, having different mandalas and mm. uh, hand gestures. So it just was very moving for me emotionally to get all that background information and then to try to write about it in a way that people would not just say, oh, this is too much detail. I don't care about this but to, to make it sort of dramatic with uh, one Hindu regime ending because the volcanoes blew up and then the Buddhist regime ending because the volcanoes blew up. Oh, is that right? So, I mean, hmm. in, the, in, in the future, is, is there a possibility that Indonesia will have some, I won't say chance, but that sounds too, um, too scheming, really. But, I mean, the, the volcanoes are going to blow up again eventually. There's just no way to stop them. There's always volcanoes so, going off in Indonesia. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes sometimes they just bury the landscape with, you know, meters and meters of ash. Right. Or yeah, they a big volcano going off like Krakatoa can uh, can change right. world right. history. Change everything. Yeah. yeah. So I so the question I have for Indonesia is is that is there some way to uh, manage their heritage, their cultural heritage as a modern nation that combines Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam. And I think there's a shamanic tradition at the base of all that, where oh, their ancestors right. remain to be very important. Yes. So how to, how to do that skillfully, uh, that would be a big, I think it would be a way to provide relief for the entire nation if there ever is a disaster like that. And I think at some point there will be. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's one chapter of the book. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what's the, uh, what's the uh, working title? If you've got one. The working title is far West passage and far West is a challenge to the notion of far East from Europe. And, you know, they've always talked about, well, we have to go to the Far East and Far East. And I hear students in California talk about Far East. And I say, wait a minute. You mean the Far East as in Europe? Oh, no, no. I mean the Far East as in uh, China or Japan. And I said, well, what about the West? 
you know, you're on the West Coast here, and that's that whole conception of the world is very Orientalistic, and we don't really need to get into Orientalism as a uh, type of perspective, but that is something that still remains quite active in the mindsets of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I can go into it if you want to, but I'd rather not. Well, I'm but, interested in all of it. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, that's, yeah. that's your strong point, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hang on a second. Your beloved wife just brought me... A matcha latte, darling. Thank you. Hey, uh, this is John Nelson. I'm talking. Could you hear her? Hello, hello. He says hello. Yes, I did. Thank you. Yeah, she remembers you well. Um, oh, goody, oh, wasn't well, that nice summer? We don't travel around Indonesia much. Um, uh, for us, going uh, a, a few hours to Ahmed or someplace is is uh, mm-hmm. you know a, a serious vacation. But we did go to Borobudur. We 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 really liked uh-huh. Jogja. And we loved the temples in that area and some really interesting yeah. museums and, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, cultural stuff and, and also it's more sophisticated than Bali. It's like the intellectual yeah. capital. Um, right. And, uh, we really, we really like Jogja, Jogjakarta, I guess. And, uh, yeah. uh, and, and, uh, Borobudur and, and, and there were, there were some other, uh, temples in, uh, uh, near there. There was a, a Buddhist I happened to stumble on right next to one of the places where, where it's part of the standard, you know, like temples to see. There was, uh, like a, a, a like a monastic school or something and it was very, right, right. Active and I went in and Katrinka and I went in and looked it over. But Borobudur, we really loved, um, you know, we spent, oh God, all day there walking around and going up it and oh. around it. And do you know what? You can't do that anymore. They fenced it. Oh, they did. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's recent. You can't, you can't walk on the building? No. It's, that's what I've heard. I've heard there was just too much wow. wear and tear and, you know, yeah. well, I can see that. That's yeah. For sure. Yeah. Uh, huh. Well, I feel fortunate then that I was able to go there. Yeah. And the, uh, the, the monastery that you're talking about, I think is arranged on a kind of, some kind of religious grid that connects that monastery to another temple further out. But it's, it's like in Japan where, you have the area south of Kyoto, south of uh, Osaka, the, the key peninsula. And that whole peninsula is a big mandala. And so any of the trails that you take in that peninsula, you're walking this mandala as you're getting closer to the center of it, which is this big shrine, the uh, Kumano shrines. And then there's a gigantic waterfall, like 630 feet or something in that area. But that the whole area, including the Issei Grand Shrines, is part of this mandalization of the landscape. So I think the same thing happened at Borobudur, uh, where the outlying temples, and some of them were destroyed in the big volcanic eruptions. But uh, the one that you went to is still part of that religious grid. So, I mean, stuff like that really fascinates me because that connects with the land. And I come from a small town in the center of Kansas. 
oh. uh, Little River. It's about 450 people. Well, it's probably more living there now, maybe 500 people living there now. But when I was a kid growing up, we'd walk out in the countryside and we would find arrowheads and pottery, uh, Indian pottery and, um, well, not Indian, Native American pottery, spear points. Um, and that made us realize, well, we're, we're recent arrivals here. There are people that lived here long before us. Right. But you never studied anything like that in school and certainly no history about the white settlers coming in and blowing the Indians out of there. Um, so yeah. what, I, what I did right after I retired was to write a book about growing up in central Kansas. And oh, in one yeah. of the chapters, yeah. I, I referenced the anthropological and arch, more ar- archaeological writings and publications of this gentleman who grew up not so far away, probably 50 miles away from Little River, but he did a big excavation just like three and a half miles outside of town, sponsored by the Smithsonian Institution. He was the lead archaeologist for the Midwest for the Smithsonian. And this took place in the early 60s. So he discovered not only um, villages and some chain mail from the Spanish conquistadors that went through there looking for the seven cities of gold. The conquistador's name was Coronado. Yeah. And yeah. that happened right there in that area. But also they discovered council circles, and these are ceremonial circles, in each of these two villages that were about three miles apart. And the council circles align with each other and also align with the winter solstice and the summer solstice. And that is the place where the, the sun is at its most extreme, right, on the horizon. So when the sun, let's say the sun comes up in the wintertime and shines into this opening of the council circle on uh, both of the villages and then the other way in the, in the summertime. And then later on, they discover an, a carving on top of the ridge of this giant serpent with its jaws open, and the upper jaw points to the winter solstice, the lower jaw points to the summer solstice. And they also, it aligns with the counter circle. Anyway, that just blew me away. And the archaeologist himself, his name is Waldo Waddell, and he's passed away in the uh, late 80s or early 90s. But he says, in all of the Midwest, there's no other place that has this configuration of council circles, alignment with the solstices and the carving on top of the on top of the hill. So I put all of that into one chapter and that was great fun to work with that material and to kind of fictionalize it just a little bit, make them into into living beings, having a conversation, a, a radio interview actually, uh, that took place in the early nineteen eighties. So that's that's one chapter in the book. All right. And, now, what's um, this book what's this what's the title of this book? The book does doesn't have a title yet, but um, it's in the process of being um, of maturing. I guess you could say. I finished okay, the manuscript, okay. but um, I'll get back to it in the springtime. So yeah, yeah. The other the other books I've done are um, experimental Buddhism, innovation and activism in contemporary Japan. That was published in November of 2013 when I was on the road, and I I didn't even see the book until I got back in 2014. But that book 
was nominated for a prize called the Numata Prize. Oh, that's that an important one. To, that's a big prize, yeah. Yeah. And it's the outstanding book, outstanding book in Buddhist studies for a given year. So um, I shared the prize with another scholar who wrote about how uh, meditation in Myanmar, or called Burma then, was an act of resistance against the British occupation. And a couple months just decided, well, we're going to teach meditation to the entire public and not keep it in the monasteries. Mm. So that's really a fascinating study as well. So we shared the prize and we gave a, a joint lecture at Berkeley in 2014, and that was a very memorable part of my career. But before that, I worked on Shinto in Japan and published two books on that. One is on a shrine in Kyoto, a very old shrine. That is the number two shrine in the whole country. I mean, there's like, I don't know, 60, another 60,000 Buddhist temples now. I think there's like 80,000 Shinto shrines in Japan currently. And this shrine in Kyoto is, is called uh, Kamigamo Shrine, the Kamo Shrine. Right. Way up in the northeast corner of the city. Right. And it's the number two shrine in, in Japan after Issei. Issei is number one. And Kamo I, shrine I didn't is number know two. that. I didn't know that. Wow. Yep. Um, and the first book I did is on a shrine in Nagasaki that was published in 1996, I believe. And... What's it called? That book is, You've got to say the called, titles. Okay. The, <laughs> the second book, yeah, the, the second book um, that was my dissertation is called Enduring Identities, The Guise of Shinto in Contemporary Japan. And I like the word guise because it's part of the word disguise. And... Uh, Shinto has this slippery quality to it where it presents itself as a religion of nature and, oh, we're the, we're the indigenous religion of Japan, and they kind of cover up some of their politics, uh, which connects with World War II and the emperor and that whole nasty business of trying to become a colonial power. But um, Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo is still uh, in the Shinto, I wouldn't say it's in the Shinto hierarchy, but it's it's in it's underneath the tent of Shinto in Japan, which the right wing is also under the Shinto tent in Japan. And right. Patriotism. Yeah. The right wing and all of that. And the Yakuza, the Yakuza, the gangsters. Yakuza, right. That's right. And and so, um, the police somewhat, huh? <laughs> somewhat, yeah. Yeah. Right. And and the, the uh, LDP, the, the, the uh, politicians. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. And uh, anyway, the first book is called um, A Year in the Life of the Shinto Shrine, and that was published in 1996. And that's more of a first-person observation and participation in the yearly cycle of rituals that one major shrine enacts. So the book is divided into four parts, spring, summer, fall, winter, and I describe most of the major rituals that took place, as well as the the personalities that were involved. So it's a very mm -hmm. lively book. Um, it's sold probably around 12,000 copies, which is pretty good for an academic publication. Mm. And it's still in print. They're all, they're all still in print. So you can find them on Amazon or wherever it is you look for books, and they should be in your library too. Wow. That's pretty good. Um, 
And uh, I have a documentary film on Yes, Penny Shaw. You have? You made it? Yep, I made it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Really? You probably told me yeah. that. If you did, I forgot. <laughs> um, no, that's okay. <laughs> um, well, well um, can we see the documentary film? You can see it. You can see... You can see rather long trailers, and if you see the trailer and you want to see the film, you should probably contact me instead of paying what the company that is distributing the film is asking right now. So they have what, what are they possibilities. What are they asking? I think I think they're asking like twenty nine dollars to stream the film, and if you buy the film, it costs ninety nine dollars. Uh-huh. I wouldn't buy it. I wouldn't buy it. It's it's kind of amateurishly made with several cameras, but there's nothing else like it because no academic has really taken on the topic of Yasin Kunishran. And I, I feel like certain things just are so obvious, but nobody's really dug into them and presented them in a way for the general public to understand or for students to understand. You know, they write papers for a limited academic audience, but at this point in time, I feel like that's sort of a a, a vanishing uh, need. People still do it, and there's more journals now than ever before, but the idea of paying a journal to publish your paper just is wrong to me. Well, there's a lot of that in, in all, all types of publishing. And I I, well, I, I, I beg people not to do it. They get hold of me and say, oh, well, for $10,000, this, uh, I say, look, they just want your money. Just, just make it print yeah. on demand and don't try yeah, to make money right. on it and get it out right. there and let people know. And it'll be there. You never know what will yeah, happen right. with, with it. That's right. Um, uh, but um, as, as a result, that's my general attitude. Um, uh, we just barely get by, thanks to generous contributors like you. Um, <laughs> um, um, well, I wish I could get more. But. <laughs> um, the, uh, the you know that's also interesting to me. Um, well, I'm going to make sure uh, that w- that we have. An up-to-date, well-presented page for you on uh, Cuke.com. Uh, and uh, well, uh, we'll deal with that later. Uh, and um, okay. uh, you said uh, you could send me the film? Yeah, I can send you the film. I don't have a copy with me in Victoria. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. One. Yeah, I, I don't want a hard copy. Don't you have a... Don't you have uh, uh, an MP4 or something? I think I have it on a hard drive back in Eugene, Oregon. Well, no hurry. No hurry. Yeah. Uh, so it'll be December by the time I can send it to you. That's, oh, that's fine. No that's yeah. fine. Listen, I can't. Okay. I can, I, sometimes I don't get back to people till December on emails <laughs> and stuff. I've got, I've got to-do lists. I've got important lists. It's, it's, I, I remember in the barn where I was living with John Tarrant back, you know, years ago. I, you know, I'd, I'd find a box that said "important do now," and it would have dust over it and cobwebs around. Oh it. no! Oh no! Yeah, uh-huh. and it's still that well, way. I, it's still <laughs> that way. But yeah. I think I think that helps your mind stay focused. 
it gives you motivation for having something important to do every day. And that's some, that's a great quality that many people just let let fly. You know, they don't care about it. And I, I know a friend who is retiring from UC Berkeley after having his career there as a professor. And he's moving to Oregon and said that he's going to stop doing his research and writing and he's going to become an organic farmer. Well, power to him. I mean, that's great. But I just think there has to be a way to accommodate an interest in um, his field, which is Buddhism, Buddhist studies, uh, with organic farming. And I, I don't see them as opposites at all. I see them as complementary. Yeah, so sure. Maybe, maybe, sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's different types of people and they have different uh, psychological needs and everything. People are so different. No, that's true. Uh, yeah. you know, and, and maybe he'll, you know, what will happen to him? Maybe he'll find it was, it was like a, 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 an idea. I mean, there's a reason people left the farm and that is that they could. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, uh, he might get into it or he might, he might start, you know, getting back into the Buddhism and might start uh, into the into the, the his studies, he might, you know, we don't know what will happen with him. Uh, all yeah, right, we don't I'm, know what will happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say something about Shinto that, and and I really admire uh, your uh, your grasp of uh, the situation in in Japan uh, and worldwide and in Asia with. Uh, religion uh but so uh, my my take on things is uh uh is is this in japan just to put it in a nutshell people don't like buddhism they like shinto what do you think about that i wouldn't categorize buddhism as a singular entity first of all they have the Buddhisms that they have grown up with, that their family has their affiliation with. Maybe a, a new community is connected to a certain type of Pure Land Buddhism, and this is a new thing for their family. So I think it's kind of temple by temple and location by location and priest by priest, because how a temple runs really depends upon the priest. Well, I certainly agree with that. I certainly agree yeah. with that. Um, and, and I was thinking but that the, when you were talking about, uh, Japanese, my God, it just gets down, it gets down to the individual teacher mm-hmm. and it, yeah. it, not just the lineage, but they change radically in within yeah. the lineage. And then the end, you know, it's like it, it's somebody, uh, or I read once there was a, a uh, monastery in Tibet. I've never forgotten this. That oh, when you enter it over the gate, it says ten thousand monks, ten thousand monasteries. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's right. And that's right. That's what I've seen. However, a very common experience for me in Japan. Uh, I did not. I I found telling people I was there studying Zen was 
incomprehensible to a lot of people, not to everybody, because I knew a lot of intellectuals and artists and different types of people that could, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that, uh, appreciated it and they had a different type of understanding. But this is a, this is a common uh, thing. I would say, uh, uh, I say, oh, and then your, your family is, is Buddhist. I, uh, imagine it's yes. Uh, well, what sect? Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's the temple over there. They don't, I've just found over and over yeah. people wouldn't necessarily know what sect. And then they'd say, uh, I'd say, well, I'm here studying Buddhism. And they'd say, I'm not a good Buddhist. I haven't offered incense at my altar in a uh-huh. long time, you know, and, and, uh, and, I, you know, people would come into our house to study English. We learn not to light incense. They go, "Oh, it's that horrible smell." And what I found yeah. was they identified Buddhism and incense with death and funerals and memorial services, right. Right. and right. and priests who wanted a lot of money from them to do everything and obligations exactly like that. Right. Yep. But uh, I mean, there's a certain amount of of uh, you know priests who want money and. Shinto too, but Shinto has the birth, it has the weddings, it has life. And, um, people, a woman said to me, our shrine burned down in, in Okayama. You know, what are we going to do? You know, uh-huh. uh, she was just distraught. Well, it can be rebuilt, mm. it be another shrine. Uh, right. but I don't know, it seemed to me, it seemed to me Shinto was just really embedded in people and in the culture and everything in Japan, and so is Buddhism. Uh, it's sort of in their bones, but uh, sort of in their bones. Yeah, yeah. But, but but people seemed uh, pretty atheistic overall to me. Mm-hmm. In in a well, I mean, in a yeah. in a, a a way that doesn't exclude spirituality, but right. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Buddhism that's is atheistic, but you know what yeah. I mean. It, that type of statement is hard for North Americans, Europeans, who are versed in Christianity or Catholicism to understand. They think, well, how can they possibly go to two different religions? And sometimes it's even more than that because there's a shamanic element uh, underneath Shinto and parts of Buddhism that I find rather fascinating uh, is something you have to engage with as well. For example, I mean, in the countryside, you find these strange little altars that some farmer may have built to protect his field or uh, water supply going to irrigate rice. You to find altars, many things made of uh, bamboo growing in the area, but it, they were put together in such a way that you had no doubt this is a this is a, an object that some person considers to have power and will protect my crop. So I feel like that is part of Japanese culture, yes. a very deep part of Japanese culture. And the younger generation growing up there now references that in not not by going to shrines except when they go for New Year's or right. participate in a big festival, but they reference it through anime and through manga. And there's some very popular, really, very popular movies. That's good. And yeah, they they have Shinto shrines and the the Miko dancers, the female attendants, as a major figure. 
So there's a film, David, you should see called um, My Name. That's Say it whole, again. That's the whole title. My Name. My Name. Well, is and, it Name, N-A-M-E? Yes, My Name. And, and, and uh, is it show, made by Japanese? By Japanese animators. And it was a super popular film, probably, I don't know, seven, ten years ago. But the young woman protagonist, she is connected to this Shinto shrine. And the young male protagonist, he is a student or a, a young employee. In a, I think he's a, a high school student in Tokyo. And they're both unhappy with their lives. And they want to do something different. And so through this magic charm, they switch identities where the woman goes into the man's body and the man goes into the woman's body. And it's a fascinating film that is beautifully animated. It's just gorgeous to watch. So get get your big 52-inch uh, flat-screen TV and find a version of this film and sit back and uh, eat some popcorn and watch it. We yeah. will. We will. We can do that. Uh, we tend to watch okay. something before we go to sleep. Frequently, we just get 30 minutes into ah, yeah. it, and that's all we can do when we go to sleep. But, uh, yeah. Well, you might have to Pardon. give this one an hour before huh? you go to sleep. You may have to give this film an hour. Yeah, no, we, we, really do, we do that, too. We, it depends on, on uh, but, I mean, I, you know, I'm such a, I, 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 it's hard for me to stop working. And if oh, I get okay. to bed at nine, uh, then we can do more. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but like last night I got to bed at 10 and I uh-huh. just, it's just hard for me to stop. Uh, but, but I will, I will definitely keep that in mind. Uh, well, um, it, it, I mean, we could go on and on talking about, Yep, uh, Zen and uh, religion in Japan, uh, and you, you, we might want to go back there uh, because, um, especially Soto Zen. You know, you, you, I, I sort of would like to go back to Soto Zen, but um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to because we're talking about uh, uh, Shinto and Buddhism. I want to come here to Bali, uh, where. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, we go to Hindu ceremonies and uh, we go to some Hindu ceremonies that aren't uh, available to the public. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was talking to a, a builder who's who's a, a contractor, a nice old Muslim guy from Georgia and uh, mm-hmm. or from near there, central Java. I really love him. He's so great. And, you know, the thing about Muslims and dogs well, like our plumber electrician, when he started working here, he was terrified of having our little dog near him. But, but Cardino, mm. the contractor, oh, Bonnie would just come jump in his lap. So you never know. Oh, they're really? Different. <laughs> right. They're different. <laughs> anyway, I was telling Cardino, I said, yeah, we did this purification ceremony yesterday. I said, you know, and they pour water over your head and make all the babies cry. It's really pretty cool. Oh. I said, you know, really, I I like to do that because it's what 
people do here. I don't believe anything. I don't think anything when I'm doing it. I just like to do it. Yeah. And I said, yeah. I don't know what your rules are in Islam. I don't think he's a real, uh, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't know what his, you know, how far into it he is. He just seems like a really solid, nice old guy who's probably younger than me. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, uh, I said, you know, if I was around, there was nothing but, but, Mosques, I would want to participate in whatever way I could without uh, being a member. And he said, God doesn't care. Mm. Isn't that great? That's great. I just That's love great. that. And so yeah. th there's a, there's a, a Muslim that doesn't uh, fit in the, 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 yeah, the typical yeah. idea. And, you can run into all sorts of stuff like that. Our, we had a yoga teacher who went to Mecca with her mother, and she was just so excited about it. Really? Um, yeah. And, oh, she gave us like an hour and a half report when she came back. She she was married wow. to a Norwegian. Speech, speaks, she's very sophisticated. But she, wow. she had a – she had where she came from in Java – she had a meditation teacher. She had a, uh, a Muslim guru. Um, uh -huh. and, um, and she, she is conservative in some ways, but, uh, certainly not in others. Uh, anyway, all right. Mm. Enough of that. I'm getting off track. All right. So here in Bali, what I notice is what people are really into is not Hinduism. They, mm -hmm. they know the Hinduism. They know the, the, they'll, they'll say, yeah, well, you know, there's Brahma, there's, uh, Vishnu, there's Shiva, uh, and they'll tell right. you, but they can tell you all this stuff. And then they'll, then they'll say, I can't tell you how often I've heard this from Hindus here. They said, but of course there's only one God. And I think, yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's because this is a Muslim country that's like to protect them because they can't be recognized as a religion here. Buddhism and Hinduism could not be recognized as one of the six, or I think six or seven, six official religions without having God on top. So Buddhist God, right. Brahma's God, uh, and, um, but, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but then, all right, then I notice in their daily lives, what are they doing? What's important? They're making mm. offerings constantly to spirits. That involves right. them constantly, every day. Yeah. Uh, putting up, putting up those big bamboo poles that loop over at the top, and then there's offerings at the top of that. Yeah, we get that them. Was was, yeah, that was what was going on in Denpasar when I first oh, arrived. Oh, well, you were you were here during Galangan. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that's every 210 days or something on their weird calendar. Right, right. Um, yeah, that's, those things are called punjur, P-E-N-G-U-R. Yep. And, and our, our landlord's son, who lives two houses from us, uh, make, puts ours together for us every time. Oh, nice. And our landlord and he put it in in front of the house, uh, and uh, it stands up quite some time after 
after Kuningam, which ends the Galingam thing. Yeah, I love them. Uh, mm. um, well, yeah. they're, they're, they're lovely. They're graceful. They're symbolic. They're rich with meaning, cultural and uh, religious. And I think stuff like that is really important to have in a society because it gives people an orientation and it does, it's not coercive, but you know, your, your contractor friend who said, well, God does, God doesn't mind if you were to participate in that mosque, but the imam of the mosque may <laughs> mind. Oh and yeah. There, there oh yeah. But, uh, there probably uh, yeah. would be something to negotiate. You know? No, no, so, you can't, um, you couldn't do anything. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know anything about it, you know, but I wouldn't do anything yeah. that wasn't, um, uh, okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, prostrating yourselves and bowing the way they do five times a day, that seems, that yeah, seems yeah. like, it seems like good exercise. And, you know, <laughs> right. uh, uh, sure. I have nothing against it. And a lot of it that goes on is, you know, just like a, uh, a group of guys or women who uh, need to do it. They just gather together and do it. But I don't see a lot of that here. Uh, it, mm-hmm. I mean, there, there is a mosque here in Sonora. We used to live near it. And I, I liked it because I liked hearing the calling coming out of it. Well, when I was in um, the Borobudur area, there was a large mosque not far from the small hotel I was staying in where my knee was wrecked. And at 4.30 in the morning, the call to prayer came out and it just went on and on and on. And then I could hear something about, I I heard a politician's name because I saw his picture on these posters all over the place. And it seemed that the mosque was sponsoring a visit by this politician. And then I asked somebody at the hotel when I saw them for breakfast a couple hours later, and he said, oh, yeah, that happens regularly. The politicians go around to the mosques in the area, and that's a, a meeting place. And so during the call to prayer, they just happen to say at the very end, and by the way, uh, later on today, you know, so-and-so person is going to be here for a political rally or a talk or something. And that kind of, uh, <laughs> I, that got my attention, I guess you could say. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, and people, uh, you know, uh, in Hindus... And Christians in the area are are they they they're under a lot more pressure than they are here. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. And and uh, they're apprehensive uh, about that, or which way the tide will turn. Malaysia is uh, that people are more apprehensive. It's a much bigger mm-hmm. deal there. The thing between the Muslims and the and the Chinese Buddhists, uh, but uh, and it swings. It swings. It got yeah, really swings, good. Right. I, I don't know how it is right now. It was. It was. It got pretty open for a while, but I I haven't talked to our Malaysian Buddhist friends in a while. Anyway, um, uh, the um, uh, the 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 you know what what do you see? Uh, here in terms of the 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 way the the religions are practiced or 
the well, way they I mean, planned. I just, uh, yeah, when I when I got to uh, Yogyakarta, I was a visiting professor at a Jesuit university there. The what was it called? Santa Dharma, and they have about twelve thousand students, I guess, and and most of them are Muslim. Uh, because the country is 88% Islamic. So the lecture that I gave was on experimental religion. The title of the book that I just finished was Experimental Buddhism. So I just expanded it to experimental religion. And I cited a couple examples from the local culture of especially making Islam more political and using it as a political tool to, um, to build, I guess you could say, a movement that would affect people in a very direct way. And the Muslim students didn't like that. They said, well, that's kind of off the charts to call our religion experimental. We're getting it from, from the, uh, the sands of Arabia. So they, they felt like there was a direct connection between the type of Islam they were practicing because the Quran is in Arabic. It's not in Indonesian, to my knowledge. But no, the, that, the, the that's probably of, true. The whole, point yeah. of this, the whole point of this is that my the sponsoring professor who invited me to the university, you know, I contacted him first, and he said, sure, come on over. He grew up as a Muslim, and his parents are Muslim. But his parents decided in order for him to have a good education, he needed to go outside their religion and be educated by the Christians. And so he went to this university, got his degree, and was moved by the experience, and he became a celibate Jesuit priest. Oh, my goodness. So that's, oh. a, that's a big tradition. That's a big jump to make. And he is the one who told me about the story, and I was kind of flabbergasted, and he said, yeah, it happens more than you think, uh, not just to professors at universities, but people all over the country. So that, I think, is maybe... Part of the future for Indonesia, I would love to see the country not become politicized religiously and to be a model for other countries in the world because it has so many Muslims and say, look, you know, we were able to do this and have Buddhism and Christ or Buddhisms and Christianities and Islams all cooperate together. Of course, Islam is the dominant religion, but we respect their uh, perspective and their practices and it's sort of live and let live in this multi-religious environment. I don't see why that's, I don't see why that's impossible. Well, it's, um, it, the, the problem is like I mentioned before, it's the, it's the fundamentalists, the, the, yeah, the fundamentalists, fanatics. Right. They've got, oh, because they can get crowds out for nothing. You know, everybody outraged. Yeah. So they've, they've, they've got to deal <laughs> yeah. with it. And there's lots of Christians in uh, Indonesia. Yeah. I mean, we meet Christians. We're around Christians all the time, too. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, you see, Bali is uh, Bali is a uh, uh, is the melting pot of of Indonesia. Yeah. So that's where it cut off, and we couldn't communicate after that, except by writing. Uh, but then, uh, you know, I figured it all out, I think. And, um, anyway, we're going to invite him back, huh? So thanks a lot, John. John Nelson.
Um, yeah, I want to get you back and, and just let you talk about Zen in Japan. I'll try to keep my mouth shut, which I, I never think I'm making a podcast. I'm just having a conversation. Uh, actually, I cut out a lot of what I said to him because I just, you know, we're just having a conversation. But uh, I should forget that and just let him talk next time. And with everybody else. <laughs> okay. Until next time, this is DC Poobah of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives coming to you from Sleepy Sanur with Doggett Bandita. Guest Doggett Boom Boo. New feline. She's not a small feline. Manis, who's, who, and she and Bondi are getting to know each other, and Bondi, uh, Bondi is, is you know, letting her. Uh, Bondi's very curious about her, but Bondi's not attacking her now. She's waiting till she gets <laughs> comfortable, and then, and because she wants to play with her like she did with Dear Coochie who died, they just played all the time and they attacked each other. So Bondi doesn't know how to relate to a cat if she can't play with them. Uh, but but Bonnie's is strong and she's big and she's going to dominate. Uh, you know, she's got those teeth and claws and things. And, you know, cats are cool and dogs are like, you know, dogs are like little boys and Okay, so anyway, we're all wishing you and yours a happy new year and a grand awakening. Mm -hmm.